in the afternoon lectures for uh, on the subject of Baptist distinctives. I brought to a close on last week our study of that first and foundational Baptist distinctive, which is the sole authority of the scriptures. Much more could be said than what was said. But as I have often said to you, these lectures are meant to be a general survey only. <clears throat> a general survey only of these doctrines which we as Baptists hold dear to our hearts and which constitute our unique place among all that are called evangelical. I know that there is a foot today, great movement to amalgamate. There is the desire for everyone who names the name of Christ to amalgamate themselves with everyone else who names the name of Christ. But it is not so for Baptists. It has never been so for Baptists. Historically, we have distinctive doctrines that set us apart, that qualify us for a denominational title, Baptist. And we are in these series of lectures contending for the doctrines which are those Baptist distinctives. As I am <clears throat> following more or less, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I have been following more or less uh, Jeremiah Jeter's format in uh, this wonderful treatment of his Baptist Principles Reset. This is a reprint, of course, of his original 1875 1875 edition Baptist Principles Resets. I've been following that. So I will begin today to take up that second doctrine uh, that is our Baptist distinctive. I said there could be much, much, much more said about the first one. Uh, but this is not intended to be an exhaustive study. We touched that foundational doctrine, I hope, uh, thoroughly, completely, <clears throat> albeit not exhaustively. But today we take up that <clears throat> second doctrine, the one from which we are specifically denominated. That is, we are called Baptists, and uh, our enemies, of course, called us Anabaptists, re-baptizers. We, we reject that denomination, that, that denote denominating us in that way. We are not re-baptizers because of our doctrine. Our doctrine is for a regenerate church membership and that the only baptism we recognize as baptism is that one that follows profession of faith. That is this doctrine of baptism. But I want to take a slight detour uh, from this subject. Uh, of, we will uh, get to this subject of a uh, 
spiritual or regenerate church membership. That is the second doctrine that we will take up. Baptists contend for a spiritual, not just nominal, not just figurative, but a spiritual uh, church membership, a regenerate church membership. You don't come in to a Baptist church until you have a profession, credible profession, of having been regenerated. All right? But I want to take a slight detour and read you again something Jeter said in his introduction. I think I read it before, but I want to press it on your hearts again. In his last, the last paragraph of his introduction, he said, As our arguments will be based chiefly on the common version of the scriptures, it is proper, uh, proper to notice a few things concerning it, concerning this version. He, he, of course, was using the King James Version of the Scriptures, which is what we use publicly, not to, not to denounce other translations, but we use the King James Version publicly in our teaching and preaching. And uh, so he says, Jeter says, that uh, since that is the chief version of the Scriptures he's going to use in his sermons, uh, it's proper that we notice a few things concerning it. It is made not by Baptists, but by pedobaptists. That's important to note. And we're going to show you why that's important to note. This King James Version of the Bible was not translated by Baptists. <laughs> translated by pedobaptists. The translators were instructed by King James to retain, quote, the old ecclesiastical words, end quote, found in existing versions. Whether baptism belonged to this category, we need not decide. Certain it is that the translators did not render baptizo and its derivatives into English, but merely gave them an English termination and Felt them with Latin letters. So what Jeter is warning us about here is that when you read the King James Bible and you come across this word baptize, you need to understand that is not a translation. There is no... The, the Greek word that they chose to trans, uh, transcribe was would have been translated immerse or dip or some such thing. They chose under orders from the king not to translate that word. So, of course, that has introduced, we would say, open the floodgates through the door wide open by the creation of this transliteration. It's not a translation the transliteration of the word baptizo into this word they created, the word baptize, 
that opened the door for all kinds of things to be called uh, baptism that biblically are not. So Jeter, in his introduction, is warning about this. He says the English reader is left to infer their meaning from their connection and the circumstances of the act which they denote. The reader must perceive that a version made by paedo-baptist scholars under such a restriction can have no unfair leanings to Baptist principles and yet we expect to show by a proper use of it their soundness. He said we're going to use this version anyway. But I can assure you those who translated the King James Bible were no friends to Baptists. Okay? So I just set that set that uh, before you. Jeter offered that warning. Now, to put this doctrine that we're going to take up today, a spiritual or a regenerate church membership, to put that doctrine in its simplest form, I give it to you now in this way. As Baptists, we insist from the scriptures on a spiritual born again church membership. None should be admitted into a Baptist church who do not have, possess, and display a credible testimony of having been born again. Now, <laughs> that sets us way, way out in distinction from the bulk of what is called Christendom in a broad and general way. That sets us very much in a corner by ourselves. Jeter says, a spiritual or regenerate church membership, as already stated, lies at the foundation of all Baptist peculiarities. On this point, Baptists and the few small sects that agree with them differ from the whole Christian world. Now this was, what did I say, 1815? Let there be no dodging this issue. We stand four square in opposition to the bulk of what's called Christendom by this doctrine, this Baptist distinction. He said if numbers were an infallible sign of truth, we should be constrained to abandon our principles if numbers. But they are not. On this supposition, Protestantism would be compelled to yield to Romanism. 
And Christianity itself would be constrained to yield to paganism if numbers were to be the, the judge. The oracles of God, the oracles of God are the only infallible test of truth. And it is to these that we appeal. Then he says the Israelitish theocracy or commonwealth differed widely from the Christian church or more properly speaking from the churches. That institution, that is the Israelitish theocracy, consisted only of the descendants of Abraham in the line of Jacob or Israel. With, of course, such foreigners as chose by submission to a painful and bloody right to become incorporated into the nation. Citizenship in the commonwealth was hereditary and was maintained not by regeneration and a life of piety, but by the observance of various costly rites. The government was designed and admirably adapted to preserve the nation from commingling with neighboring heathen. To the Israelites were committed the oracles of God and the honor of maintaining his worship amid the gloom of surrounding idolatry. From that favored race, the Messiah was to descend in whom all nations were to be blessed. In the fullness of time, Jesus of Nazareth made his appearance he claimed to be the promised Messiah, confirmed his title to the office by the wisdom of his words, the number and greatness of his miracles. He came not to establish or to modify the commonwealth of Israel, but to introduce a new dispensation, a new order of things. After a brief but most instructive ministry terminating in his sacrificial death, he endowed his apostles with plenary inspiration and the power of working miracles and entrusted to them the duty of carrying into effect his gracious and sublime mission. And then he said, In the execution of the plan, the apostles organized churches, first in Judea, then in Samaria, then in Galilee, afterwards among the heathen nations throughout the Roman Empire. These churches were not a continuation of the Jewish hierarchy. Okay? That's important. The New Testament church was not, never was, had no intention to be a continuation of that Jewish hierarchy. They differed from it widely in members, doctrine, rites, Worship and discipline. No man was entitled to a place in a Christian church because of his connection with the synagogue. Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, could not share in the blessings of the new kingdom without regeneration. Under the changed order of things, circumstances, which was a passport to the privileges of the synagogues, availed nothing. <clears throat> All the rites and ceremonies of the Levitical economy were abolished under the new dispensation. The truth, which had been symbolically and dimly revealed to the Jews, was clearly taught in the churches. 
repentance, faith, regeneration were conditions of admission to their fellowship and holy lives were essential to their continuance. Instead of the blood sacrifices of the Jews, the church has offered up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Christ Jesus. In fine, the commonwealth of Israel was a hierarchy, but the churches were voluntary associations. That was typical and preparatory and temporary, but these are spiritual and permanent. So, Jeter lays out for us in very fine print the uh, in very very plain words the necessity of a born again now of course he has yet to go to and we will not today but we will in his lectures we will go in to the scriptures and we will show we will show this but for now he's simply <clears throat> simply stating it <clears throat> I wanted to demonstrate Jeter didn't do this but I wanted for your sake to show you that our pedo-baptist brethren most particularly the Presbyterians do not teach this they do not teach that church membership is contingent on being born again. They believe that baptism brings you not only into the church, and I've said that, I'm, what I'm fixing to say to you, I've said to untold numbers of Presbyterians and others, and they, they just almost faint with horror because they deny it. But I'm going to read it to you from their own book. And that is that they teach that their baptism not only brings you into union with the church, but in fact into union with Christ. This is, I have, for those who get this by way of sermon audio, I have in my hand the Free Presbyterian publication of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Of course, the Westminster was originally published in 1646. And then uh, it says the reprinted with uh, corrections was reset in 1994, reprinted in 95, 97, etc., etc., etc. But this particular volume that I have is a treatment not only of the of the uh, confession Westminster Confession of Faith, but also the larger and shorter catechisms. Westminster larger and shorter catechism. <clears throat> In the Westminster Presbyterian larger catechism, question uh, number one sixty two. What is a sacrament? And by the way, you should notice, I hope you notice, in Baptist writings, we don't use the word sacrament. A sacrament has the ability, by definition, sacrament has the ability to actually 
convey grace. We use the word ordinance. But they ask the question, what is a sacrament? Now listen to the answer. This is the Westminster Larger Catechism of 1646, which is to this day the standard confession of faith of Presbyterian Church. <clears throat> what is a sacrament? A sacrament is <clears throat> an holy ordinance instituted by Christ in his church to signify, seal, and exhibit unto those that are within the covenant of grace the benefits of his mediation. So, by the performance of a, by their definition, by the performance of a sacrament, by the performance of it, that performance not only signifies, but seals the benefits of those who are already in the covenant of grace. So, of course, you understand by that from just logic, those who are receiving that sacrament are counted to be already in the covenant of grace. That's what they're saying. To increase, strengthen and increase their faith in all other graces, to oblige them to obedience, etc. Now, Question number 165. What is baptism? Westminster Confession of Faith and Larger Catechism. What is baptism? Baptism is a sacrament. Now, they've already defined sacrament for us. Okay. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament wherein Christ hath ordained the washing with water in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Ghost, listen now, to be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself. Whoa, what? <laughs> what? This sacrament, this act, which they call a sacrament, seals the recipient in grafting them into Christ. Now that's plain language, okay? And, and I encourage any Pedobaptist, whether they're Roman Catholic or Anglican or, or, or Presbyterian or whatever, read this confession. These words are simple. And if you're honest, they say that the person is engrafted in Christ because they are already participants in the covenant of grace. That's why they're subject to it. Now, let me finish reading. To be a sign and seal of engrafting into himself a sign and seal of remission of sin by his blood and regeneration by his spirit. There you have it. There you have it. 
There you have it. They, they plainly declare that this baptism engrafts them into Christ. Now, I can say this from experience, from experience, having lived in Ireland and having had a dear, dear, dear friend who was a true and profound, honest Presbyterian. If you ask Presbyterians in America, for the most part, and I've talked to pastors as well as members, if you ask Presbyterians in America, does baptism, is that equal to regeneration and new birth? In America, they will say no, absolutely not. In other countries, in Scottish Presbyterianism and any of those of that die, they will say absolutely yes. They will not hesitate to claim it. They will not deny that this confession teaches it. They have a problem with Presbyterians who don't admit it, who don't claim it. They are very honest and clear that the Westminster teaches that to use the words of the, I'm, I'm in the, right now I'm in the catechism, but if you go back and read the, the wording in the confession, Westminster Confession, it uses the term doth confer. Baptism doth confer grace. The grace of the covenant. Presbyterianism Pedo-Baptist doctrine teaches that baptism does in fact guarantee the salvation of the person receiving the baptism. It is the faith of the parents, they say. The faith of the parents guarantees that they are in the covenant. So then, question 166 is, unto whom is baptism to be administered. <clears throat> baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church and so strangers from the covenant of the visible church, so strangers from the covenant of promise, till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience. But, <laughs> here it comes, but infants descending from parents, either both or but only one of them, professing faith in Christ and obedience to him, are in that respect within the covenant and to be baptized. Okay? There you have it. Plain words. No question. If you're a child of a believer who is in the visible church, their words, not mine. Even if it's only one parent, then they are already within the covenant and therefore subject to baptism. All right? Now, I took that little brief, and I could go much, much further. I won't take your time today. Uh, you can get a copy of this uh, uh you can get a copy of this commentary. It's commentary on all the... Well, it's it's actually... <laughs> uh, it's the full confession of faith. It's the larger catechism, the shorter catechism, the sum of saving knowledge, the national covenant, the solemn league and covenant, which Teresa and I heard a great deal about when we were over there, the solemn league and covenant. 
and the Directory for Public Worship, the former Presbyterian Church Government, and Directory for Family Worship. All of that in this one book. You can get a copy of that and find yourself with some great reading. But I wanted to set that before you because uh, I wanted you to understand that there is, there is no there is no merging of our doctrines. There is no compatibility. There is no possibility that a that Baptist doctrine can merge somehow cooperate with pedo Baptist doctrine. We believe, and it is a sound principle of Baptist distinctive. We believe that none are eligible for membership in the church that are not, do not have a credible testimony of the experience of the new birth. Okay? That is a Baptist distinctive and it is a powerful distinctive and uh, uh, we could ask Brother John to prepare somewhere down the road a, a lecture for us uh, uh, as he did for us on the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. Prepare for us a, a lecture on giving us some historical example of those who have paid with their lives, with their life for standing on this doctrine that only Absolutely only those that are born again are eligible for membership in the church. That is a Baptist distinction. And just know that the, in turn, as uh, to use Jeter's uh, analogy, if we're talking about numbers, <laughs> if you're just going by the numbers, I quote him again, on this point, we differ from the whole Christian world. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. We stand solidly on this Baptist distinctive, on this doctrine. Now, where do we get that stand? I want to make the connection, and then we'll close the lecture for today. Where do we get that stand? Why do we take that stand? Because of that first principle I gave you that we draw all our doctrine and practice only from the Scriptures. And from the Scriptures, you cannot defend baptism of any who have not made a profession of their faith in Christ. That is an individual, independent testimony given. Others cannot give it for you i.e. parents for an infant. All right? So, a spiritual or regenerate church membership, that is a Baptist distinctive, and we contend for it, and many have contended for it, and it cost them their life. Their lives. Okay? Brief, just an introductory more or less to this doctrine is what I wanted to cover today, and I did want to show you that we are not misrepresenting our pedo-baptist brethren when we say that they hold that baptism 
confers grace and assumes membership in Christ. Okay? All right? Any questions or discussion? We'll say much more about this doctrine going down the road. We'll continue these lectures. Yes. Right, without a proper trial, a period of trial. Right, right. Right. Yes. Well, I don't typically respond uh, when a Pedro Baptist takes up that line uh, of of of, uh, of argumentation. They say, "Well, look, you know, there were there were unbelievers in national Israel, and there are unbelievers in the New Testament Church." Okay, I'll grant. Of course, we we grant that. That's all true. So so I, I choose to ignore that subject entirely, and and I, I don't even want to talk about that. I'll go back to the actual wording of the confession of faith itself, which specifically states, whatever about church membership, the confession itself, Westminster Confession, 
specifically states, let me find it, uh, it specifically states that grace, saving grace, is imparted in this act of baptism. So let's just let's leave the subject of membership, whether they were gender or not. Let's leave that aside. Their doctrine is that their their that that baptism actually instills saving grace. The Baptist Confession, sorry, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter twenty-eight. Baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but is also unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace of his engrafting into Christ of regeneration, of remission of sin. Now I read that, I read that earlier. Uh, there, there, is, there is this... Uh, Sacraments are holy signs and seals of the covenant of grace immediately instituted by God to represent Christ and His benefits to confirm our interest in Him, put us into the visible church, of course, and that that the grace uh, chapter sorry chapter twenty seven paragraph three the grace which is exhibited in or by the sacraments rightly used, is not conferred by the power in them, neither doth the efficacy of the sacrament depend upon the piety or the intention of him that doth administer it. But the work of the Spirit and the word of institution, which contains together with a precept authorizing the use of a promise of benefit to receivers. A promise of benefit. By receiving this, this baptism, they, there is the promise of benefit. Of what benefit? Of grace. The verse, first words. The grace which is exhibited in the sacrament. That is promised by the performance of the sacrament. And then he goes in the next chapter and says what I read you of engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins. The confession teaches that this act guarantees this regeneration and the, and the, and the receiving of grace. So leave off the subject about membership, whether they're saved, whether or not Old Testament, New Testament. I don't even care. Let's talk about the fact that your confession teaches that saving grace is actually conferred or at least guaranteed by this act. Now what say you? <laughs> well, of course, that's a works salvation. That's salvation by work. Here's a work I can perform and, and salvation is the guaranteed, will be at some point the guaranteed result of that work. And I have yet to meet any Presbyterian or other person of Pedo-Baptist thinking who can respond to that. There is, no, there is no defense of it. And in fact, as I say, in parts of the world where Presbyterianism is strong, 
They make no attempt to refute it. They revel in it. They, they rejoice in it. Knowing that their children by this act are guaranteed salvation. They revel in it. What did you comment when they bring up the uh, passage uh, where one of the parents is a believer in the, in the house of the, house of the children of one, one of the parents is a believer. And what? Yes, they're sanctified. They're sanctified by the believing parent. Yes, that's what Jeter Jeter said that that, that they they teach that. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. That's the text. What text is that? Yeah, First Corinthians seven. Yeah, yeah. Well, to carry the analogy through, if they say, okay, one parent is sanctified, is regenerate, so that child is sanctified through that parent. If they want to make that analogy, that proves more than they're willing to grant. Because then you've got to take up what he said. It also says that an unbelieving spouse is sanctified by a believing spouse. So are you saying to me that that unbelieving spouse is in fact saved because of this believing spouse? No. Well then, neither is that unbelieving child in that sense. If you're going to apply that sense to the sanctification and say, well, it means that they will be saved. Well, then you're also saying that this spouse will be saved. So it proves too much. It says more than you want to condemn. Yes. Yes. Well, it also proves far too much to the argument because there's not a word in that entire text about this. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. There's not a word about baptism in that entire text. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, so it's really it's an argument from silence, then, isn't it? I mean, that'd be an argument from silence. Well, the, the, the natural. Conclusion is well, then why do I need baptism if there aren't sanctified anyway? Exactly. You're arguing that baptism as a sacrament to bring these children into the covenant uh, in, into the visible church. Well, no, Paul doesn't mention a word about that. Complete silence on that subject. So why do I need baptism at all? Well, but what do I need it? Is if they're already sanctified, if they're already holy, and there's no mention whatsoever in that entire passage of baptism at all, then what's your argument? Yeah. Well, they, they draw from other parts of Scripture to 
Well, no, they, they, they draw from tradition and, and try to undercurrent what scripture. Yeah, yeah, that's, and that's a point we're going to get to in these lectures. Uh, it is the 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 matter that that first doctrine the soul the soul authority of scripture the pedo baptists and i've had gracious saints hours and hours and hours and hours of discussion with pedo baptist ministers uh, the brother in in ireland that we were associated with he he had a degree from not only westminster in america he was irish but he came to America and got his seminary degree at Westminster here and in England <laughs> to, to, the, to the degree. And so I've spent gobs and gobs and gobs and hours of, of time with him. They, they will, they, if, in talking with him, in his defense of Peter Baptism, he will not go to Scripture first. He goes to the traditions, the historical Traditions of the Presbyterian Church first, and of course the quote church fathers, and then then he will from that platform he'll try to build some scriptural defense by taking up texts that say nothing about infants, talk about households, but nothing about infants, and so they they cannot they cannot make they don't even attempt to mount a defense of their Baptism without tradition, referring to tradition, and 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 basing much of what they hold clearly on tradition. That's a big, big thing. I mean, they can't defend it just from the scriptures. And by that, they have given over the entire field to the Roman Catholics. Yeah. Oh, you've given the whole field to the Roman Catholics. The whole argument because they have taken up the Roman Catholic argument. Uh, I was trying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The power of the work itself. The power of the work itself. Form the deed upon them. Then, then it's done. Exactly. Uh, I was looking for a quote. I have in my Bible. I don't know where it is. Couldn't find it. But someone said the tapestry of uh, pedo baptism hangs on the fabric of the apostles. Now, you'd have to put that statement in its context. The preacher who said that was making the point that the apostles were the transition from the Old Testament economy to the New Testament economy. And what happened is Pado-Baptist doctrine sees the apostles as continuing that Old Testament covenant regime rather than it declaring it new. So he used the, the picture, the word picture, he said the tapestry, the pictures of pedo-baptism hangs on the fabric of the apostles. And uh, they, they do that. In talking to them, you find that they talk much about the apostolic era and how that the they don't see that anything new about the New Testament. <laughs> it's not all that new to them. It's actually just a continuum of the Old Testament. And they don't see those things as having been shadows and are done away. 
circumcision. The sign and seal of the Old Testament, they say baptism is the sign and seal of the New Testament, taking that wording right straight out of the Westminster Confession, the sign and seal of the New Testament, baptism uh, on the entrance. So it's a huge subject and interesting subject, and like I said, I just wanted to introduce it today more or less, and uh, we'll take up more of it, and at some point we will get to our, since we say that our doctrine is that the scriptures alone are the rule of faith and practice, we will get to the scriptures and see what they say about all of this.